0: Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Leading with James Ashton. In this podcast, I talk to leaders from a wide range of organizations about their attitude to leadership, success, failure, the big decisions they've made, and how they made it to the top. So far, I've talked to more than 40 bosses from the worlds of business, charity, the arts, sport, technology, and healthcare. Find out more about them at leadingpod.com. This time, my guest is Tony Danker. He's the man who's embarking on one of the biggest jobs in British business as the new Director General of the CBI, the leading business lobby group. He joins the CBI from Be The Business, a three-year-old campaign group funded by business and the government designed to drive up the UK's poor productivity record. I began asking Tony how he felt about making the switch.
1: It's very sad to leave Be the business. I was the first employee in 2017. I built this thing from scratch with uh, a set of pioneers. Three years doesn't feel like it's long enough in some respects, and uh, nobody stays anywhere forever. So at the moment, it'd be the business. I'm feeling very sad about leaving, very proud about what we achieved, very excited about the CBI at an immensely important time for our economy. But to be honest, I'm feeling just really sad. Uh, This has been a labour of love for me for the last three years. So it will be very hard to move on.
0: Do you think about things like legacy or is that for someone else to, uh, to decide about?
1: I, th- I don't think you can think about legacy when you've started a startup, be the business had literally no people, no program, no partners, no budget three years ago. And my job has been to take it from into first gear, then into seconds. And the legacy is that it's still here, it's doing well. But it's for somebody else really to help it fulfill its potential. And that's what Anthony, my successor, is tasked with doing along with the team.
0: And productivity is being talked about. I mean, it's always a a slightly hard subject, but it is being talked about. It's in to-do trays for ministers and for for CEOs. You know, it was mentioned in Boris Johnson's uh, virtual Tory party speech. So that must be something of an achievement to you. You know, you've helped to push it on and push it up the agenda.
1: Yeah, I think we have put it on the agenda and we have pushed it up the agenda. And I think that what I think we've tried to do is make people feel that it's achievable. When we started this job, the UK's productivity performance had flatlined for a decade. In fact, it was going down, not up, which is spectacularly bad news compared to historical standards. And it's quite easy to get defeated about that. It's also quite easy to believe that, while there are very endemic factors, things that will take decades and billions of dollars to fix it, What I think we've tried to do on the productivity agenda is to say, no, productivity is, you can touch it and feel it, you can change it, you can make progress on it, and you can do that right now. And every firm can do it. You don't have to rely on the prime minister or the chancellor. Every firm can be improving productivity. We can improve the productivity of regions, of sectors. And I think we've tried to make people optimistic rather than defeatist. And we've tried to help people to see you can do things now, rather than believing that you have to change the entire governance of the UK economy.
0: Because um, it is always defined, I think, as output per worker per hour. And and the, the ingrained position seems to be of productivity that the UK is 30% or so behind the US, about the same distance behind Germany, and then within the UK London is about 40% ahead of the national average. I mean, is that about where it is? Is it picking up yet or has COVID set it all, all back even further?
1: Well, you've given an accurate description of the mathematics of it.
0: But what we've
1: learned in Be The Business in the last three or four years is that underlying that is the story of corporate performance. And the truth about the UK economy, when you look at the, if you look at the overall performance of all UK firms, you notice two things about the UK compared to other countries. The first you notice is that our high-end performers, the top of our performance curve is really the best in the world. We really do have some of the most productive businesses in the world and in every sector, by the way. However, when you look at the majority of UK corporate performance, hundreds of thousands of businesses, uh, a lot of them smaller and medium-sized, but not only, some large companies too, they underperform compared to the rest of the G7. And so this is a story of corporate performance. And by the way, that variability is true in every region, and it's actually true in every sector. Now, what's really happened in the last six months on the productivity story is quite deceptive, because on the one hand, You're right, productivity performance is unlikely to go up anytime soon, because for reasons we all understand because of COVID, output is down, demand is down, and those things mathematically will make productivity look low. But one of the things that's been most dramatic in the last six months has been a complete transformation in corporate behavior by UK businesses compared to the previous 10 or 12 years. You have seen huge uplifts in innovation. You have seen huge uplifts in technology adoption and a huge surge towards greater business efficiency. And I think the silver lining of what has otherwise been, first of all, a tragic health crisis for our country and also a real economic shock is that actually, through necessity, corporate Britain is probably as productive in its behaviours, as innovative and technological in its behaviours, than it's ever been at any point in the last 12 years. And that's really the bright spark upon which we can build.
0: And is that because, as you say, that you know we call it the Zoom boom, the innovation coming through and so on, or actually is some of it simply because these firms employ fewer people than they did six months ago?
1: Well, look, first of all, you're right to say it's a very simple human maxim, necessity is the mother of invention. And so every business uh, in the country in the last six months has been forced into all kinds of new business models, new customer models, new products and services. And they've had to because of the times we're working in. And so I think that the crisis has demanded a huge uplift in leadership, your preferred subject as well as huge amounts of innovation and change in businesses. The future pattern of employment is yet to be seen for sure. But even with people still on the books, people were making these changes. Mm. And I think that's a very, very interesting and not often discussed trend in the last six months.
0: Because the theory has always been, as you say, you know, the UK does have world leaders. We shouldn't be too negative about that. But uh, a lot of what Be The Business has said over the last three years is if only every company can just lift up a few percent, then uh, the economy benefits by 100 billion or so on. How much do you think you talk about the leadership has changed of, of these companies? How much do you think leadership rather than the shop floor was the problem for the previous 10?
1: Well, I do think that leadership is the arbiter of success or failure of a company in the same way that I believe a head teacher is the arbiter of success or failure of a school. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want to put too much pressure on leaders, but I certainly think if you're going to change a company's behavior, it starts with the leader of the business. So, for example, uh, our recent research shows that there's pretty low levels of digital skills and know-how on the part of business owners. We also know as a country we need to boost the digital skills of the workforce. But in very practical terms, you know, a small manufacturer in Berry of 40 employees is only going to adopt technology and build technical skills if the owner of the business feels confident, capable, and skilled in rolling out technology to improve the business's productivity. And so we are absolutely focused on building the leadership capability of British businesses because we think they are the people who in turn create high-performing firms. They can't do it alone. They can't do it without a highly skilled workforce and a motivated workforce but the building of skills and motivation is a job for the leader themselves.
0: Well, tell me how you set up Be The Business then from that sheet of paper. So to to rewind a bit, correct me if I've got this wrong, there was an initiative about 2015, George Osborne was the chancellor, how do we crack the UK's productivity puzzle? There was an initiative led by Sir Charlie Mayfield at the time of John Lewis to look into this. And out of that task force, if you like, Be the business was born, which is, I would describe it as a, it's a business group, business funded, government funded to find the solutions and to share best practice. Have I got that about right?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's what the Mayfield Review, a report called, How Good Is Your Business Really? concluded. It concluded exactly what you said earlier, James, which was, we needed to find a way to lift by a few points. The performance of hundreds of thousands of firms in Britain. So at the time, you know, the industrial strategy at the time was quite focused on lifting a few strategic sectors by a mile. We said, actually, no, let's try and lift a mile wide part of the economy by an inch. And if you are going to believe you can do that, then you have to have an offer that captures the imagination, motivates and builds the skills of lots of leaders of businesses. And so that was my inheritance as employee number one. That was the sort of the thesis or the broad approach. And as I started to put together Be The Business, the very first thing I did was tour the country and meet lots of business owners who were in this classic kind of long tail. They were growth businesses, but they weren't Mega growth businesses. So they were restaurants that were growing at five percent a year, or they were manufacturers that had you know had twenty percent up years and five percent down years. But we're now in a period of steady growth. And I really wanted to get under the skin of those businesses and what you'd have to believe to think that you could get them on a on a more aggressive, optimistic growth path. Talking to those businesses, I learned two things that have in turn formed the business model. To be the business. The first one is the life of the owner of a small business is so much harder than the life of the CEO of a large company. These folks do everything themselves. They are working till 10 o'clock at night. They are responsible for HR, finance, sales, manufacturing, and they are pretty poorly, they either feel overwhelmed by the amount of sort of available advice or best practice or things they're supposed to do. It's just another list of things that they're not doing well. Or they simply don't have access to good enough advice to help them think through How am I going to go upon this journey of growing my business, growing my productivity? So, insight number one, we need to have better interventions that are truly catered to the owners of small businesses who do not spend their lives going on lots of corporate training, uh, do not spend their lives reading lots of business journals and newspapers. They're very hands on in their firms. And the second thing that we realized when we toured the country was that there is a real untapped capability and Optimism and leadership throughout corporate Britain, large corporate Britain, and we wanted to tap into that. So from Siemens and uh, John Lewis and BAE and Rolls-Royce and GSK, we got mentors, execs from within those companies who'd had years of training on everything from lean manufacturing to good HR practices And we said, look, there's a market waiting to happen here. We've got the owners of small businesses who've had very little investment in their own capability and training and have got very little time to try and work on best practice adoption. And we've got essentially an army of real expertise in British business that we can bring to bear. So that's the way be the Business works. On the one hand, the customer is the owner of the small business. We want to help them get better. And on the other hand, we've got from corporate Britain, a real talent pool of people who can help them.
0: So I suppose you had to, you know, because the UK is not short of business groupings, lobby groups, whatever you would call them. So there there was something of a crowded market. So you had to get out there and create a, not quite a burning platform, but a sense of excitement among this middle layer and this smaller layer. And I take your point, you know, the big companies will be connected to the small companies, certainly through supply chains. But for the most part, the people who were sat in Glaxo and BAE are not going to meet the metal basher in Bury or other places. So there is that connectivity. Tell me what you did to actually set up the organisation, though, because there must have been a piece of paper. First of all, this this is the first thing you led, as far as I can see from your CV. So there's those thoughts going through your mind. But also, you have to draw structure, you have to hire people, you have to think, well, how will we function on a day-to-day basis?
1: Yeah, it's true. This is my first job as a CEO. And so, you know, I've led teams, I've led departments before. But being the CEO for the first time, I've learned a lot about what that really means. And we can talk about that in terms of how we went about the setup. We had a good start. We had some seed funding from the government. And they said, look, here's seed funding for the first three years for you to get started. And I had six months in transitioning out of my old job just to think for a lot lot of the time and to talk to people and to start to put in place what I thought would be an org structure. What would the departments of this thing be? You know, I knew I could hire about 20 people. So what would the capabilities be? What would the departments look like? And I, I really focused on putting a team together first. Very unusual to hire a top team from scratch. I'm not sure that'll happen to me again in my career. And so that's what I really thought quite hard about. And then I sort of leveraged in a basic offer. You know, we had a website built at the time by Cisco for us, who were one of our partners. We had this mini MBA program, which was the product of something that BAE and Rolls-Royce had built for their supply chain. So we sort of brought in what, in the jargon people call the mvp you know the minimum viable product and we had the minimum viable team and then really from day one be the business has been a three year journey of test and learn and we've tried to make sure that we have built, you know, that one of the next things we did was we said we were doing quite a lot with manufacturing firms. Manufacturers really understand productivity. And I said, look, we, we need to get into the services sector. We can't let this become a manufacturing thing. So we started a hospitality cluster in Cornwall. And it was all about restaurants and hotels. And it was about Waiters and waitresses selling wine, more expensive wine, and training them how to do that. And we just tried to put some stakes in the ground, either in terms of programs or in terms of communications, that painted the way forward for how we could get this thing called a productivity movement going in Britain.
0: Of course, because I guess people do think of, when people think of productivity, they think of a the production line in the factory going a bit faster or, or less things falling off the conveyor belt or whatever. But actually, it is as much about upselling wine, you know, in Padstow or somewhere.
1: That is exactly right. All the businesses that I spent all week talking to, dozens and dozens of owners of smaller, medium-sized businesses. And a small portion of them are manufacturers. You know, we've got restaurants, we've got pubs, we've got architecture firms, we've got we've got quite a lot of food and drink businesses. And I think they all get that notion of productivity. Both sort of intuitively, they understand what it means to build a productive company, a productive workforce. But also in quite technical terms, you know, they're focused on the real metrics in a business that tell you not just how much money you made this week, but whether or not your company is a high-performance company. And that goes way beyond manufacturers, but the manufacturers typically measure productivity as a metric on the dashboard every week.
0: And so you're, as you say, some of this is connecting these firms with mentors, but part of it is also you talk a lot about programs on your website. I guess there's there's things that you've trialed, and it feels like you've used some of these firms in a good way as guinea pigs to see what works and what doesn't. But then actually you're trying to train them as much as these owner-operators have time for training and to learn new things into trying to improve things at the margin.
1: Yeah, and I think, look, the hardest thing to do is engage the owner's Of businesses, of smaller businesses in the conversation. Because again, you know, lesson number one, running a small business, when you don't have a strong senior management team and an HR department and a finance department, I have really, you know, I've spent most of my life working in big companies, and I have really got under the skin, A, because I'm running a small business, but also I spend my life with the owners of these businesses. And understanding how big a sacrifice it is for them to say, okay, I'm going to give up, I don't know, five hours a month to think about my own development as a leader, or I'm going to put a day aside a month to sit with the management team to review our monthly performance and to talk about how we can improve metric A or metric B, to do what we sometimes call working on the business rather than in the business. Engaging people to make that choice, to embark upon that journey, that's the hardest bit. And actually, when you find that small business leaders really start to do bits of work on the business, when they take, you know, a couple of hours out to work with a mentor or a coach, or when they go on a sort of evening class at the local business school and start to explore paths to growth, brilliant things happen. Brilliant things happen very quickly. Because the one thing I will say about small business owners is they're very fast, much faster than big corporates at making decisions and making things happen.
0: I suppose the challenge, and you you leave this to your successor, is you've detected this air of innovation in in British business, this needs must at the moment, of course, as we go through COVID-19, but it's it's how much this work carries on with the same velocity once we get past the virus.
1: Look, I think there are two massive shocks to our economy this year, which of course, certainly in the case of COVID, have a really damaging impact on the face of it. One is the virus and the other, of course, is Brexit. But what they both do in a way is they force and they demand higher levels of competitiveness and innovation amongst businesses across the country. They actually engage businesses to think about how am I going to innovate? How am I going to change my business? Where can I grab more margin? And so look, obviously at a macroeconomic level, Both of them are challenges and threats in the short run. But my hope is that they create a behavior change in British business that makes us more competitive, productive, innovative, digital. And it may be a while before we see that playing out in employment numbers and growth numbers and productivity numbers. But I think we are going to start seeing it in behaviors
0: right now. Because while it does feel like, you know maybe less so with the the smaller companies, but there is still that criticism to be leveled at the larger companies, you could invest more in this area in R&D and education and skills and so on. So I think that maybe that will play out over the coming years. Tell me about what it's been like to be the boss for you.
1: I have really loved it. I have really loved being the CEO of something. I've loved the accountability. I've loved the opportunity. I've loved building a team. It's always the most fun thing. I don't know if if everyone else would agree, but building a great team is just the most exhilarating thing I've always found in business. And I've learned about what you have to do as a CEO that when you're not a CEO, you don't have to do. The CEO is the person, I think, in the organization that has to set higher expectations or stretch goals, as the theorists call it. You know, you really do every day you come in, you need to try and set really ambitious goals, and encourage and inspire the organization to go that extra mile, to reach further, to try and be the best you can be. Now, I think you also need to support your organization to get there. But I do think the CEO uniquely sets high expectations, high goals, high aspirations. And that becomes really the driving force of a whole organization or company. I think that's the thing I've learned the
0: most. And what about style? Is style something you think about or worry about? Some people call you energetic, Tony.
1: (laughs) Yeah, look, I think uh, that probably is my style. And I don't know whether or not it's me or it was just the mission that I took on to be the business. But I, you know, I believe that positivity is infectious. Uh, And I think when you're trying to mobilize people for change, I mean, we're explicitly trying to build a movement. But most people in their jobs are trying to achieve some kind of change. Then I think you need to be energetic and enthusiastic and positive and optimistic, and I think you need to make that infectious. Now, by the way, you can do that—you know, loudly or quietly. I mean, I'm a bit loud, as you can tell, but you know, you don't. It's not about being an extrovert, or it's not about being a public speaker. It's about having belief. It's about instilling that belief in others and probably my style i would say is is to coach leadership in those around me i spend a lot of time i think working with my team to enable them to you know go further to take more risks to care about the people around them i think you can get a long way by being a good manager of people i think it gets the whole organization moving. So yeah, maybe energetic is, is one word for it. And then leader as coach is probably how I'd sum up my style, I think.
0: Tell me how you work with, you know, because Be The Business is, is sort of born out of UK business. A lot of those companies that you've already cited, BA, Glaxo, and the, the big names of industry, you know, some of their leaders are on, I think, your advisory panel and so on. So you have a lot of grandees, a lot of captains of industry breathing down your neck. So I'm quite interested in, in that relation when you were making something of this startup.
1: Well, first of all, they've been fantastic. And I, the, the, I've learned two really interesting things about captains of industry, as you call them, James, <laughs> about chairman and CEOs that sit on our board. The first thing is they are unbelievably quick to get to it. So uh, whenever I have presented at a board meeting, either some you know, numbers or some assessment of where things stand, they take about 30 seconds to catch up. And I don't know what it is, but I just think if you've run organizations, you have instant understanding for how organizations run, and you can tell very quickly what the challenges are that the leader in front of you is trying to confront. So uh, that's been mostly inspiring, sometimes frightening, uh, how quickly the people around our board table just get what we're trying to do and where we're doing well and, and where we're struggling. The second thing that I've learned is how inspiring stories are rather than data. Now, I realize that's a little bit sort of countercurrent, you know, everything is data and analytics now for all the right reasons. But stories are hugely effective in leadership. So if you were to ask most of my board, what do they remember most from three years of board meetings? They probably wouldn't remember much of the data, even though many of them are, you know, data supremos. They remember the stories. They remember the stories of the Cornwall pub owner. They remember the stories of the meringue manufacturer in the West Midlands, of the school food supplier in Berry. They remember stories. And I don't know whether or not that's just unique to this job, Be The Business. Uh, I'm going to try and keep it going in my next job. I think storytelling, people relate to stories. They relate to people. And they'll understand the economy, yes, in part through data, but also in part through stories.
0: That's interesting. I I suppose they get the detail quickly. They are probably the sort of people who will always read the board papers, Tony. They are absolutely brief to the hilt when, when you come into the room.
1: Yeah, they read the board papers, but they're very good at seeing past it. I mean, I guess being a CEO can be a very lonely job, but I have found if you use your board correctly, You get a lot of coaching and mentoring. And I've always tried to be very frank with the board individually and collectively. And, you know, the tone of my board reports or board meeting or whenever I go and see them one to one is this is what I think we're facing. And my take is that we should try and do X. But there is a view we could do Y. What do you think? And I'm just very transparent with them. I just make it very plain to them, the leadership challenge or the decision that I'm confronting. And I find instantly that they get it. They get the complexity of the decision. They get the need to make a decision. And they, therefore, you form a relationship with them that's about, is a leadership relationship, really.
0: And what's, um, what's gone wrong? What could have gone better? Because the challenge, the challenge is still out there, I suppose, isn't it?
1: I don't think we've worked out how to do what we do at mass scale quick enough. You know, in the last three years, we've probably had 5,000 businesses go through our programs, but we need to have 500,000. We've done some work in a couple of regions, but we haven't done work in every region. And what I think we're still grappling with is how can we do what we do and scale it far faster? And that's what everybody says about us, by the way. You know, we have... Uh, When you measure uh, satisfaction levels or advocacy levels or NPS scores, all the measurements of corporate performance on Be The Business, what you find is we have very high quality scores, but not enough volume scores. Or as one cabinet minister put it to me, Tony, I don't know many people that know enough about Be The Business, although the people that do really like it. And that's probably just a very crisp way to describe the success and the failure uh, that I've had in the last three years.
0: It's not much fun to be a best kept secret, is it?
1: Do you know what? I think, I, I think I'd love to be a best kept secret, but <laughs> I, uh, not, not, not when the stated intent is to be the opposite. So uh, look, hopefully uh, we've got a great new leader coming in to pick up the reins from me. And I think that the reach, the voice, the impact will only grow and grow. It turns out that it might take a decade to solve a decade of UK underperformance.
0: Well, I think your chance of being a best kept secret at the CBI is probably quite slim. Just tell me a little about the attraction of of going over there and your, uh, your thoughts about it.
1: Look, I think, uh, you know, in an ideal world, I would not have left Be The Business after three years. It probably would have been closer to five years. The thing I hadn't quite internalized until I got the phone call is that the CBI, as you may know, is a fixed term. Uh, so Carolyn uh, and every director general does a five-year term, and I in the new job will do a five-year term. So the train comes along once every five years, and, and you have to decide whether you want to get on. So it was, a, it was really ahead of time for Be The Business, which is still very much a work in progress. But I think Look, when I spoke to John Allen, who was at the time the president of the CBI, and Karen Billamoria, who has succeeded him, and speaking to Carolyn, you know, it's very clear that the extraordinary times that we're living in demand people who want to really help the country have an impact, roll up their sleeves and help respond to this challenge. And uh, my interview process was happening during lockdown, and almost every week, the work that Carolyn and the team were doing was getting increasingly important, you know, working very closely with the chancellor on the job retention scheme, for example. And it, it felt increasingly like a calling. And that's something that if I was fortunate enough to be offered the job, I couldn't say no to. And I feel I feel like that now. I feel like it's, a, it, it's quite a grave moment to be doing this work, but it's supremely important. And I'm, uh, I'm really excited about it, though. I'm very sad to be leaving Be The Business.
0: And of course, you don't know what that five years brings. I remember talking to Carolyn a lot in 2015. And of course, she had no idea that her term would um, include the Brexit vote, the way it went and so on. So it really is, you get on the train, but it's kind of like a magical mystery tour in a way. You have to be quite reactive to whatever comes along, Tony.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, in in ordinary times, I would say to you, the next five years of the CBI, of my leadership at the CBI would be all about the competitiveness of the British economy after we leave the European Union. And I still think that that's true, by the way. But in the short run, it's going to be about the virus and the economic recovery from the virus and putting some meat on the bones of this now, cliche, building back better, which I agree with wholeheartedly. And so, yeah, I think the, uh, the times dictate what the priorities are. And so myself and the team that I've started to talk to, you know, I don't think we're trying to rush ahead to change the subject or to impose upon the agenda something fresh, new and irrelevant to today's challenge. Today's challenge is very real and it will be, therefore, you know, the thing that matters most in the inbox I do think over time, you know, history will show that these are the five, our first five years outside the European Union after 40 years inside, demand a really exciting, competitive and compelling economic strategy for the country. And uh, whether or not it's uh, in November when I join or next November or the year after that, I expect I'll be spending a lot of my time and we'll be spending a lot of our time with CBI members on that subject.
0: Quite an intro whenever you join. And, and how would you characterise the organisation you, you inherit, the relations you've got? I mean, there, there were tensions between CBI and government, I think, over Brexit. Do you think COVID and the close working has built those bridges? Or is it helpful that you're coming in with a fresh face and fresh ideas?
1: I think the relationship is really strong at the moment. It's about people rolling their sleeves up, whatever their position is, to think about the economy and, and economic recovery post COVID. So I think it's in, that's in really good shape. And yeah, look, Brexit has been a tense relationship. I mean, forget the CBI. It's been a tense relationship between government and business. And I think that hopefully we'll find a way forward by the end of December and we'll start to do the work together that I think I've been brought in to help with, which is how do we bring together government and business post 2020, to build a more competitive Britain. And and I think whatever happens, we will be moving into that kind of tone. And that spirit of partnership will absolutely have to continue. And and I think we've shown uh, and the team have shown and just a big shout out and congratulations to Carolyn and the team for the way they've responded to COVID-19 and the way they have worked so hard and worked so collaboratively with government to forge a really great path forward, I hope.
0: I was looking back in your CV and it's always interesting to look at people I interview at, at what point they fancy to run at being the boss, being the CEO and so on. And um, and it's hard to see. Obviously, you, you did run teams, as you say. You were running international expansion at The Guardian, uh, which I think was the main projects that took them into Australia and to the US. And you've got that very handy interest in productivity, which has become very mainstream now. But I guess it wasn't when you were at Harvard Kennedy studying it. So tell me about how you view the progression of your career.
1: I don't think I was the equivalent of, you know, the ambitious politician that wrote down on the back of an envelope, I want to be a CEO by the age of 40. But I I always felt that I wanted to lead, I wanted to play a leadership role. And I actually always felt that I always had leadership roles, you know, even though I was never the CEO, I always felt I had leadership, you know, I don't think leadership is, you know, there isn't the leadership of one in a company, distributed leadership and decentralized leadership is what builds great businesses, right? And GE tells you that and McKinsey where I worked, taught me that. And so I always felt I was leading without being the CEO. But yeah, probably towards the end of my time at The Guardian, I was starting to think I want to run something. And so when I got the call from Charlie Mayfield, who is one of the great inspirations in my career, I instantly, yeah, I wanted to give it a shot. And I I think that in many respects I was equipped for it. So I don't, I don't think the see you know the CEO role is not such a massive step up in the sense that for the first time you're in charge of making decisions or for the first time you're in charge of managing people or setting out vision. You do that in other jobs. You know, you do that in sub CEO jobs. I think the thing that changes when you become the CEO is you have ultimate accountability. It's a weird thing, really, because in some respects, everybody does what you say and you have lots of power and influence, and everybody tells you yes. But in the end, if you don't deliver as a company, you are responsible. And so it's quite a deceptive kind of role. The thing I've learned about it that I think is different to the roles I've had before is that it is incumbent upon you to set the expectations high, to drive the organization forward, to be more ambitious. And you have to do that every day. And so that's been the step up for me, but I've, I've loved it.
0: And someone said to me recently, the difference between becoming CEO is no one stops by my office anymore just to shoot the breeze. They all have an agenda.
1: Yeah, and of course, the way you respond to that is by stopping by their office and trying to shoot the breeze, and then they ask, what's your agenda?
0: If only we could, Tony, if only we could go into people's offices these days. Unfortunately, you can just drop in on their Zoom calls. Isn't that a
1: thing? Yeah, I think also, but I think, you know, the era of sort of hero CEO who's distant from the staff. I, I don't think that's the reality of modern day management. You know, I think that CEOs and staff are far more connected. They're far more peer in their engagement style. I think it's a good thing as a CEO to share with your teams the ups and downs of being a CEO and what you're trying to achieve and bring them along in the journey. By the way, I mean, we joke about, you know, the of being in an office. I think that's one of the things that's been most interesting about the last six months has been what it's like to lead when you're doing it through Zoom and when you're not face-to-face. And when people are going through quite a lot of trauma and change, and I think one of the things that's heartened me most is how much and how attentive CEOs have been, not just CEOs, management teams have been to staff wellbeing and staff motivation and staff emotional resilience I hear it a lot, and I hear it not only from the leaders of big companies that have departments for that kind of thing, but I hear it even more from the leaders of smaller businesses. And don't get me wrong, I think myself and everyone that's been in the leadership position probably feel like we haven't done enough on that agenda, but I've been struck at how intentive everyone has been to it, and I think that's been quite heartening, really.
0: So, Tony, how has it been, do you think, to lead a company through this pandemic, through COVID?
1: I think there's been a really interesting shift in what's been required of leaders under COVID. And I I know this myself, but I know it more from talking to the business owners we work with. So you saw at the beginning of lockdown probably a two-day wobble from everybody who, you know, all of us were in some kind of shock at truly comprehending the implications of lockdown and what that meant. But then there has been a huge leadership surge there's been a surge in confidence and authority and decisiveness because there had to be so leaders of businesses ended up taking you know 40 decisions in 2 weeks the likes of which they would normally take 2 a year close the premises furlough the staff change the product mix take out the bank loan and you had this huge surge of decisiveness, direction, almost an old-fashioned command and control leadership style. And it turns out that Restart has been harder than lockdown, in a way, because what's happened to most business leaders in Restart is that there's still quite a lot of decisions to be made, but they're not absolutely necessary. They're discretionary or their timing is not necessarily immediate. And so I think you've seen this real shift in leadership from immediate crisis through to absolute grip and authority and decisiveness, through to confronting now at this stage the decisions to take, big decisions, and when to take them when they aren't always required by events. So do I? how many people do I bring back? Do I invest to grow now? How do I use my bank loans? Do I really you know, double down on the online channel? Do I reopen the store? Those are really big leadership decisions that people are being asked to make now. And in a funny kind of way, they are so much harder than the incredibly big, but almost obvious decisions people had to make in lockdown. Uh,
0: And has the government done what it should have done to help these leaders out?
1: Yeah, I, I think almost universally, the leaders of businesses that I speak to give credit to the government for things like the JRS and for the banking schemes and for deferred payment of VAT and various holidays. They deeply, deeply appreciate them. And obviously, the debate will be for how long should they continue and in what circumstances should they continue. But I have to say, I, I do think it's been a good moment this last six months in terms of a a real relationship, a partnership between business and government. And the businesses I speak to have really appreciated that help.
0: Tell me about McKinsey. You had 10 years there and and McKinsey crops up on a lot of CVs of CEOs or equivalent. In fact, there was a little bit of blowback about McKinsey when your appointment was announced in, in June. I mean, what do you make of that? I mean, To what extent is McKinsey seen as a safety blanket for recruiters?
1: Look, I think that McKinsey, and not just McKinsey, by the way, consulting firms management consultancy strategy consultancy it's a great grounding for leadership roles because it gives you a almost a pretty sort of 360 degree training in things like strategy analysis client relationship skills working in teams driving performance And so the reason why I think people in consulting, why why you see a lot of people in leadership positions having come out of consulting firms is that, first of all, they probably had leadership potential before they went into consulting firms. So consulting firms may be taking too much of the credit, but also they're just really good places to hone those kinds of skills. And I feel that I really benefited from my time at McKinsey at gaining that very broad skill set. You know, I never did an MBA. I did a master's in public administration, actually. But, you know, I felt that my time at McKinsey was like a, a life learning MBA. I just learned a lot about business and strategy and working in teams and finance and analytics. And it was a very concentrated way to learn. So I think that's why people in consulting firms go on to leadership roles in business. I think they gain a lot of those skills. And that, by the way, is the people proposition of consulting firms. That's why they're so good at recruiting.
0: And, so, and some of them, including McKinsey, they hire well and, um, and they churn quite well, I think, as well.
1: Yeah, you know, I think if you go into any consulting firm in the country, I think the ra- the ratios are something like, you know, one in six consultants will, well, at least at McKinsey it was something like this, one in six consultants go on to be a partner and the other five don't. And either because they realize they're no good at consulting or because, frankly, they don't want to build a career as a consultant, but they wanted to get those skills, that skill set, that experience as a stepping stone in their career. And And I think that works fine for everybody, by the way.
0: And how are you, uh, you talked about helping people in your organization, just finally, what's your approach to mentoring? How are you passing things on? Is it through the organizations that you're involved in or are there people outside in charities or others that you, you help as well?
1: Yeah, I don't know why, but I've always found myself wanting to mentor others and wanting to be mentored by others, I've always found those conversations, whether or not it's me doing the learning or me passing on the learning, just really valuable. And the people I mentor or coach pretty much always include, first of all, my current teams. And I spend a lot more time mentoring than I do directing, by the way. Secondly, old teams. I like to stay in touch with the people that worked I worked with before. I'm always interested in their careers and their growth. And then, yes, I've also worked with people who lead in charities as well. But I, And I find, to be honest, all three of those conversations pretty similar. It's a pretty similar approach. And I've been very lucky to have some great mentoring also. I mean, my current chair is as you mentioned Charlie Mayfield who was the chairman of John Lewis and he's had a huge impact on me you know he's been my first chairman as a ceo and Charlie as chairman of the John Lewis partnership was you know had direct reports who were ceos you know the ceo of John Lewis and the ceo of Waitrose and so i've been really lucky to have somebody who understands what it means to be a great leader give me mentorship and so although we do have a, a formal role in terms of chief executive and chairman uh, and he is my boss uh, for another 10 days. We've both used that relationship as a mentoring relationship. And I've thoroughly enjoyed his challenge to me about, you know, he's always set me higher expectations and has always supported me to get there. And I think I've passed that on in turn. And uh, he's been a huge help to me as I've made this transition to CEO over the last three years.
0: Okay. You know, one of the biggest challenges of leadership, I know uh, Richard Lambert has talked about this a lot. You have got a lot of chicken dinners to look forward to. So do you have to put yourself on a strict diet, do you think?
1: I think I will be the first CBI director general since 1965 who won't spend uh, their first year uh, having a dinner three nights a week. And so I intend to be the slimmest and fittest CBI director general in history. Uh, but eventually the virus will go, we'll be back to normal and I think the dinners will return.
0: Okay, Tony Danker, thanks so much for the conversation. Thank you, James. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton. Please rate and review us if you like what you've heard. You can find more leaders sharing their stories in previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts or take a look at leadingpod.com. My book, The Nine Types of Leader, published by Kogan Page, draws on the wisdom of CEOs I've interviewed over several years, including some that have been on this podcast. The book is out in January 2021 and available to pre-order now.